Well, good morning, church. Trust you are doing well. I want to say welcome to those of you who are joining us online and also uh, good morning to those who are outside enjoying the beautiful weather. Um, name is Brandon Ziski, lead pastor here at Austin Oaks Church, and I'm just going to jump right in this morning. We're going to continue in the vein. I like the enthusiasm. I don't know where that's coming from, but like, that's good. Hopefully you stay like that throughout the whole morning. Um, last week, we started talking about how we were going to jump into two weeks of just looking at our heart, a time of an examination. And one of the things that we said, and I'm going to say it again, is that it's so easy for us to want to have revival happen. You know, we say we want God to bring about revival in our nation and in the church and all kind of stuff. And the reality is a lot of times we want God to do it out there while we're neglecting the fact that oftentimes, actually 100% of the time, revival always starts in the house. It always starts with us in our hearts. And so this morning... What we're going to do is we're going to have a morning of examination, a time of response. Today is going to be a day when we need to allow the, the word of God, that which is sharper than any double sword, that which is alive and active to penetrate our hearts and our souls and to help us see our actions, our behaviors, our attitudes, our dispositions. We need God's word to speak to us in this moment, in this day, in this time, because only through Jesus Christ and only through his word can there be healing. Can there be restoration, reconciliation, unity, encouragement, and true joy? We need God's word to reveal our hearts this morning. We need God's word to examine the areas of self-righteousness and pride and arrogance, insecurity, guilt, and shame. Still excited? <laughs> I know it sounds heavy, but the reality is this is gospel. Death always precedes life. We have to go through this process. We're exhorted in the gospel of John to keep producing fruit with repentance. It's here that we need to come to. This is part of working out our salvation. It is up to us to bring this to the table. We need to continually confront God's word so we can continue to die to self in order to gain life, to die to self in order to gain Jesus, die to self so that we can live and declare the good news of Jesus Christ, which is the power of God for all who believe. The gospel is the only effective power in this world right now, forever and ever, for all things, for all people. How else can the church be the movement of God here and now unless we continually say to God, here's my heart, Lord, search me. Know my ways. Reveal to me if there's anything that is not pleasing to you. And we're always going to discover in that posture, God's going to pour out his grace to us. And as we receive that grace, next thing you know, we become conduits for God's grace to be going out through us, to be a blessing to this world, to be salt and light in this world. That's why it's so important for us to continually to do the work of repentance. We have to be willing to carry our cross. We have to be willing to deny ourselves and to follow him. So we have to ask the questions. What are we worshiping? Who are we exalting? What are we living for? What has my heart? And yes, this process is not comfortable. It's not meant to be. And yes, it can be baneful, but we got to understand that's the beginning of healing in life. I love what the psalmist says in Psalm 30 verses 4 through 5 where he exhorts out to the church or to the nation of Israel, sing praises to the Lord, 
O you, his saints, and give thanks to his holy name, for his anger is but for a moment, and his favor is for a lifetime. Weeping may last for the night, but joy comes in the morning. So there's three words that I'm going to repeat that is exactly right out of the letter that we're going to be reading this morning, and it's consider our ways. Consider your ways. We're going to discover that God is going to treat us like adults. He's going to give us the responsibility to take a step back and to carefully consider, to carefully look at our lives, to look at it soberly, without taking offense, without justifying our behaviors, without excusing it. We need to consider our ways to look carefully at our actions, to look carefully at our thoughts, look carefully at our behaviors and our emotions. We need to ask who's number one in my life. We need to ask that what shapes our priorities. Who are we worshiping and who do we fear more? Because who we fear ultimately shows what we love and what we worship. So we're going to be looking at an Old Testament letter of Haggai, which I know is really hard to find. And I'm telling you right now, so that way you don't feel, you know, um, like I can't, I don't know where Haggai is. Is it Haggai? No, it's Haggai. Like I always have to pull up the table of contents. It's a two, two chapter letter in the Old Testament. It's towards the end. I encourage you to turn there. But what we're going to discover in this moment is God addressing his people and bringing the same call to action to consider their ways. These two chapters in the Old Testament, I for me, it is like two of the most packed full chapters of God's heart for God's people. We're going to feel this challenge this morning. I'm going to exhort you and encourage you to soften your hearts, to lower the guard and let God speak to us. Consider your ways. Think soberly. Think honestly. Don't defend yourself. Don't justify your decisions and your actions. Don't make excuses, but objectively consider them. Now, I know that sounds heavy-handed, but listen, God does these things because of his love for us. This is nothing short of God's grace for us, that he would give us the opportunity to assess our hearts because if God didn't do this, let's just be honest, we would wander away, hopelessly away from God all the time. But God in his grace comes and challenges us to look at our hearts so that we can continually return to what is best. And that is worshiping him alone. So beloved, listen, now more than ever, because today is what we have for certain, which is why now more than ever, the church of Jesus Christ needs to return to worshiping Jesus alone. Now more than ever, the church needs to live with the mindset of Christ first, of the gospel first, seeing everything, processing everything, all of our social issues, everything that's happening in our world. We need to process it and filter it and act according with it through the lens of the gospel because nothing else in this world demonstrates the power and the love of God apart from the gospel of Jesus Christ. We can't be taking sides with the sides that the world offers us. There's only one side that a believer can take, and that's Jesus's. That's it. But we drift. We become apathetic. And that's why this morning, we need to consider our ways. And I have people that come to me and oftentimes go, Pastor, like, 
what should we do today? Like, how do we go about helping these issues and fixing these solutions? And I also hear on the other side, people saying, man, I wish these things didn't happen. I wish we could live in a different time. And I look at all of this, I go, listen, we need to understand that God is sovereign over all things, which means he's called us as the church to live in such a time as this. So what do we do with that? I believe with all of my heart that the church's first response should always be repentance. Because when God has our heart, we will be about what's on his heart. So what I'm gonna do is I'm gonna pray. I wanna encourage you to put yourself in a posture of humility. I feel oddly pressed to go on my knees and pray. You don't have to, but I encourage you to do it if you want to. But if you don't, I just wanna encourage you to pray with your hands open because it's a sign of surrender. It's a sign of submission. But do whatever you want to do to prepare your heart for this time. Lord, we come before you aware that we are sheep, aware that we are prone to wander, and that your grace is so good that you constantly pursue us. You constantly woo us back to yourself. You disrupt our lives to get our attention. Thank you. Lord, we pray that we would hear your voice, not my voice. That we would hear your spirit. We would respond to your spirit. So God, search our hearts. Do what only you can do. Praise in Jesus' name. Amen. Have you ever finished or finished? Start over. How many of you are the type that start projects and never finish them? Spouses, be gentle. Okay. You know, where it's like, like you get excited about starting a project and you go after it and you don't get to it. How many of you are reading more than one book right now? Right? This is like, I'm going to finish that book. I'm going to get to that one. I'm going to get to that one. You're like, you see the next title and you get excited about it. And you're like, you want to open it up. But like halfway through, you're like, I'm moving on to the next one. You're like, I'll get to them all. You know, it's like we like so often, like I know for me, I'm the type of person that gets excited about starting new things, especially house projects. <clears throat> Honey, be careful. Like I love to go after them and she continues to compile the honeydew list. But every time she wants to bring that list, I want to start a new project on my own just to get away from the honeydew list. But like I will start them, but I won't finish them. And for many, many years, like my dad, like I always made fun of him for this. And I always like would poke fun, you know, especially every time I would come back home. But my dad was notorious for starting projects and never finishing them over and over and over. If I were to go home now, some 20 years ago, like he started this project, didn't finish it. Something that I, like my brother and I caused, we like broke a hole, we put a hole in the sheetrock. And still to this day, there are posters covering that hole. And every time I come home, I'm like, dad, why is that still there? He's like, yeah, I'll get to it later. I'm like, no, you won't, right? And like as, as much as I used to ridicule my dad, I realized like, man, the apple hasn't fallen too far from the tree because like even now in our house, I did this project in my office and it's not finished. And, and here's the thing, like 
we can get to this place where we will always have this excuse like, I'll get to it later when I have more time or when I have more money or whatever the excuse is. And the more time you allow to pass before you finish completing that project, right? You actually become so used to it, so comfortable with it that you become indifferent to it. You don't even notice that it's not even finished anymore, right? Like usually your spouse does, but you don't. You know, it's like we get so comfortable living in our mess, in our unfinished projects, we get to that spot where we're like, ah, I'll get to it later. It's just not the time. Now, what if we were to take that thought and apply it to our spiritual life? Are there things in your life spiritually, in your pursuit of following Jesus, that maybe you have started that you have put off? Are there areas in your spiritual life where you have grown apathetic, complacent, indifferent, lethargic, the I'll get to it later when it's more convenient. Yeah, I mean to do it. I mean to finish it. You have all the good intentions. I'll get to it later when I have more money, et cetera, et cetera. I'll get to it maybe when, like, you know, it's more favorable to me, et cetera. How many of you ever feel called or stirred in your heart to pray for our nation and pray for our loved ones and pray for those communities that are hurting and mourning in these seasons, praying for those who are far from the Father, and yet you're like, yeah, I'll get to it later. I know I should forgive him or her or that group or that person, but not right now. I know I should be in the Word more. I know I should be thinking about my life through the lens of the gospel, but I just don't have the time. We have to ask the question as we consider our ways, what's more important in our lives? What has number one in our eyes? What is the thing or the person or the ideas that are influencing us more? Who are we worshiping? I mean, this is a big deal to God. Because just like we get so comfortable living in our unfinished projects at home or whatever it is, and we can come easily indifferent to it, we do the very same thing in our spiritual lives. We can easily live in the middle of things that are unsettled. And we get ourselves so busy and so wrapped up and so concerned with our things, our agendas, our opinions, our platforms, our positions, my wants, my things, my net worth, and God comes along in his grace and forcefully and yet gently says, consider your ways. Take a step back. Look at your life and ask, are there things unfinished, unsettled in your life? God in his grace, God in his goodness wants us to consider our ways. So where are you at this morning in relation to obedience, in relation to seeking first his kingdom, in relation to having God as top priority in your life. Consider your ways. Haggai chapter one, verses one through five. In the second year of Darius the king, in the sixth month on the first day of the month, the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet to Zerubbabel, the son of that name, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, the son of Jehoshadak, the high priest. Thus says the Lord of hosts. And if you're the type that loves to underline in your Bible, this is a verse I want you to underline. These people say, the time has not yet come to rebuild the house of the Lord. Then the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai, the prophet, 
Is it a time for you yourselves to dwell in your paneled houses? While this house lies in ruins, now therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. And for us to understand the context of these five verses, I have to paint for you a picture of what's going on here in the history of Israel. You see, this is a significant deal. The temple of God is a big deal because it's a reflection of the covenant that God made with his people Israel. And so I want to go all the way back to Genesis chapter 12 when God called Abraham to go after him, that he will lead him into a land that he will show him and and he will make Abraham's name great and he'll have this people, people numerous as the stars in the sky and they will be a great people and God will bless them so that way they could be a blessing to all nations and that God would dwell in their midst. He would reside in their midst. And as the story continues, that people grow and grow and grow. They become enslaved in Egypt for 400 years and God raises up a person by the name of Moses. And Moses comes to rescue Israel out of the hand of Pharaoh, leads them through. And over and over and over in the story that you can find in Exodus and Deuteronomy, you will hear that God's like, I will be with you. My presence will be with you. Over and over and over, I will dwell. I want you to grab hold of that word. I will dwell with you. God's presence was a big deal to the nation of Israel. In fact, it even says in scripture, like what other nation God resides or dwells in the midst of his people to which no one could say, oh yeah, we do. Only God alone, only Yahweh. It was so big, it was so serious that even Moses didn't want to do any sort of leading. Didn't want to take the nation of Israel anywhere unless God's presence was going to go with them. Later in their story in the nation of Israel, David The man after God's own heart is the second king in the nation. And his heart was stirred up to build a temple for God. He's like, man, I'm living in this beautiful place. And our God lives in a tent. And he put it to his heart to want to build the temple of God. But God said, no, not you, David, because there's blood on your hands. That will be for your son, Solomon. He will do it. So Solomon gets tasked with building the temple of God. And in the fourth year of his reign, he finishes it. It's a beautiful, beautiful story. And in that moment, the temple that Solomon built is so majestic, it's so magnificent that people from all over the world wanted to come to see this beautiful thing. It was a sign of God's glory. It was a sign of God's blessings, a sign of God's favor, which was ultimately a reflection of God's covenant, of God's relationship with this people. In 1 Kings chapter 6, verse 12 through 13, God gives Solomon this beautiful promise concerning this house that you're building, the temple. If you will walk in my statutes and obey my rules and keep all my commandments and walk in them, then I will establish my word with you, which I spoke to David, your father. And I will dwell, it's an important word, among the children of Israel and will not forsake my people. God also gave Solomon another promise that as long as his people were faithful, even if they did stumble, even if they did sin, even if they did go wayward, and if they repented and turned their face to the temple and prayed, God would hear them and God would forgive them. You see, the sign of the temple, the temple was where God dwelt. It was this beautiful picture of God's heart for his people and how the people treated the temple was a reflection of their relationship with Yahweh. The nation of Israel understood that the temple is where God's presence was. It was held with great awe, great fear, and reverence. 
they knew that God didn't need a temple. They knew that God can't just simply reside in temple. They can't contain him, but God chose to dwell there. God chose to make himself accessible there for a reason, to be in relationship with his people. Well, as the story goes, Israel wasn't faithful. God raised up King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon, ransacked Jerusalem, destroyed the city, destroyed the temple, enslaved the people of Israel, took them into captivity for 70 years. And then God raised up another king from Persia. And at that time, God gave Israel favor. And Cyrus the king allows Israel to go back to Jerusalem for the sole purpose of rebuilding the temple which is a beautiful way of saying God is giving them another opportunity to restore the relationship. Now, imagine for a moment, you're coming back into Jerusalem. You've been enslaved, taken away from your land. Your heart is broken. You long for Zion. You long for temple. You even like wrote Psalms and songs about that in, you know, in the, in, in the exile in Babylon. And you come back and you find the whole place just completely destroyed. Rocks, rubble everywhere, burn marks everywhere. Like the buildings are overrun with like trees and shrubs and all this kind of stuff. It almost feels like one of those end of the world zombie apocalypse movies. And they're there. You got to imagine the heartbreak in that moment because they're realizing that this all happened because of their disobedience. But yet they're excited because God has given them another opportunity. And so we see the story in Nehemiah and Ezra where they began to rebuild the temple. They laid the foundation and they restored the altar of their God and they resumed worshiping. They restored their relationship with God. And in Ezra chapter three, they began to praise God. Great celebration, great worship. All these things are going well and almost get this like sense that there's gonna be momentum and Israel is gonna be restored. Oh, but then out of nowhere comes some opposition. Hey, what are you guys doing? What makes you think you can do this? And this empty rhetoric, these empty threats, this subtle clapback that came from this opposition caused panic in a nation of Israel. Even though Israel apparently, obviously had God's favor, had the king of Persia in their corner, they had everything going for them, this opposition caused them to stop the work. And this is the moment where I think we need to call an ace an ace here. Because that opposition was just empty talk. I believe because of what God says in this passage this morning that the opposition became for them an opportunity to make an excuse to not be about God's work. It is hard. Oh man, I don't know. Man, maybe we should just wait till the opposition goes away. Maybe we should wait till that settles down and then we'll get back to it. I mean, they allowed the opposition to be effective for 16 years. Think about this. For 16 years, they lived and worshipped amongst the ruins of the temple. That was the singular reason why they were able to come back to Jerusalem was to rebuild the temple. That's what God called them to do. And they started, opposition came, and they said, ah, not right now. We will get back to it later. That opposition, I'm telling you, became the perfect opportunity to make an excuse. For 16 years, nobody brought it up, not even a leader. Why are we doing this? We should be doing something about this. For 16 years, collectively, they neglected the very reason why they came. 
So God said to Haggai, these people say it's not the right time yet. I want you to hear the disappointment in that. Like one of the things that we struggle with in church today is that we think that God could never be disappointed with us or that God couldn't be upset with us or that God comes and disciplines us. Like disappointment and discipline are part and parcel with love. If God wasn't loving, then he would never rebuke us. He would never discipline us. He would just let us go our own way. And I love this statement, these people. It makes me think of moments when my kids, our kids are misbehaving and I just look at my wife, I say, your kids, <laughs> they ain't mine right now. They're yours, they're your problem, right? It's like these people, but listen to the language, listen to this. They say it's not time yet. I mean, that is heavy. They have good intentions, but they will return to the work when it's more convenient, right? When the kids grow up and they're out of the house, we'll get to it. When work settles down, when I have more time, more margin, then I'll get to it. When I get this sin or this addiction under control, then I'll get to it. When I build up some net worth for myself, then I'll be about God's work. When the culture isn't so tense and so offended by my faith, then maybe I'll share my faith with other people. 16 years, and you're telling me the right time hasn't come yet? The reality is the right time never comes. And so God calls it out. Friends, listen, we need to understand that the ability to come and rebuild the temple is an invitation for the people to engage with God. Again, to rebuild the temple speaks about how they see God. It speaks about how important God is to them, that God would dwell amongst them. Do they care about that? I mean, for 16 years, they're still worshiping. They're still bringing sacrifices on this altar while the temple is in ruins. How is that honoring to God? These people say the time has not come and God is in effect saying no more excuses. No more excuses. So here's the deal. And this is where we need to do a gut check because our excuses are always a pretext for our own selfishness. And as of this morning, I added self-righteousness. Our excuses, I don't know enough, I'm not good enough, this, that, 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 whatever it is when it comes to following Jesus, it's just a pretext for our own selfishness and self-righteousness. So every time we come to worship, which is truly every minute of our lives, we always have a choice to make. Will we offer ourselves? Hear me now, please. Will we offer ourselves or will we offer our excuses? Delayed obedience is 100% of the time disobedience. Delayed obedience is 100% disobedience. They knew why they were there. They knew why they were there. To rebuild the temple. To restore relationship. Church, what about us? Why do we exist as a church? Why do we do the things that we do? What's the church's purpose? What is our calling? Like, why are we here today? 
Why have you been placed in the context that you find yourself in, the neighborhoods you find yourself in, the positions you at work that you find yourself in, the schools that you're in? Like, why? And yes, opposition will come from the outside and sometimes inside the church, but really the loudest opposition comes from inside of ourselves, our flesh and our selfishness screaming. We have to be honest, will we allow this opposition, will we take advantage of it as an opportunity to become apathetic, complacent, indifferent? The purpose of the church today is the same as it has been since Jesus ascended to the Father. It's to build up the body, the church, to go in all the contexts that God has us, to make disciples, to tell people about Jesus to help people understand who Jesus is and to walk alongside of them so they can obey and follow Jesus. The gospel is the power of God for all who believe. The church of Jesus Christ is the hope of the world. Church, I gotta wonder, have we become apathetic? We are saved not just so we can feel some good blessings and build up our own lives. No, we are a redeemed people to be salt and light in this world, to come alongside those who are hurt, mourning, discouraged, heavy-handed, impression, all that kind of stuff. And it's only through the gospel of Jesus Christ that we can do that. We are to be ambassadors on God's behalf, appealing to the world around us to be reconciled to him, to tell others about Jesus, to live for his glory, to be a living sacrifice, to maintain the unity that Jesus' blood has bought us, to love our enemies, to bless our enemies, to pray for our enemies, and to forgive as God has forgiven. This is what the gospel has achieved. Have we forgotten our purpose? Is the church lying in ruins? Do we come to church on Sunday morning worshiping, knowing that we're still apathetic because we know what God's going to call us to do? How many times do we, myself included, walk out on a Sunday morning going, that was good worship, that was a good message, that stirred in my heart, and then Monday comes, you're like, I don't even remember. Are we being conformed to the ways of the world? Are we labeling things in our culture, in our society, the way the world labels things? Do we see life the way the world wants us to see life? Or do we place the gospel filter on everything? Because he continues now to them. And I want you to catch on to what God says here. The word of the Lord, verse 3 came by the hand of Haggai the prophet. Is it a time for you yourselves to dwell? Remember how many times we talked about the importance of the word dwell? God dwelling in our midst, dwelling in our midst. Now he's saying it's like, hey, is it a time for you yourselves, which is a redundant phrase, which in Hebrew is an important thing to say. And he's like, it's you, you're choosing this, to dwell in your paneled houses while this house lies in ruins? Now, therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. Step back. Think soberly. Think carefully. Look at your life. You have so much and harvested little. You eat, but you never have enough. You drink, but you never have your fill. You clothe yourselves, but no one is warm. And he who earns wages does so to put them in a bag with holes. They ever get to the end of the month and go, where did the money go? Thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. Verse 8 is a... A verse of repentance. Go up to the hills, bring the wood and build the house that I may take pleasure in it and that I may be glorified, says the Lord. 
You looked for much and behold, it came to little. And when you brought it home, I blew it away. God's like, I'm disrupting your life. I'm trying to get your attention. <laughs> Why? I love that. God said that. He's like, I know you're smart. Why? Why do you think I'm doing this? Because of my house that lies in ruins while each of you busies himself with his own house. Therefore, the heavens above you have withheld the dew and the earth has withheld its produce. Is it a time for you yourselves to dwell? Now, this idea of dwelling in paneled homes falls on deaf ears a little bit because it's a cultural thing, the way they built their homes there. The word paneled implies two things. One, the building of their home is complete. So their home is complete. The roof is over their head. It's done. God's house is lying in ruins. Second, a paneled house is a modern equivalent of, let's say, getting granite countertops with the vein running through it. It's a luxurious upgrade. He's like, like, listen, hear me clearly. God is not against us having homes and upgrading our stuff. What he is against is that coming at the cost of obedience. Because that's what he's saying. He's like, let's check the heart. You are telling me, the Lord of the hosts, like you're telling me, Yahweh, that it's not time to go about my work, that you care enough about our relationship, but you're saying it's okay for you to finish your house and upgrade your home. Consider your ways. That's all he's doing. Consider your ways. Look at your life. Are you satisfied? Is there peace? Are there all the things that you're longing for in your life? Are they happening? I caused the drought. I blew it away. Friends, listen. I, I've been asked this before. Someone's like, would God do that today? Would, does God that, do that in the church today? And I looked at my friend. I said, I sure hope so. Because if God doesn't do that, if he doesn't disrupt our lives to get our attention, I will never return back to God. I will go busy about my own way, thinking that I'm all good, being apathetic. Come on, let's just be honest. Praise God for his grace to disrupt our lives. The reality is they didn't want God as much as they wanted their own stuff, their own comfort, their own pacifying. They didn't want to deal with the issues. They didn't want to like confront the opposition. Friends, listen, gospel work is difficult work. It means getting into messes of people's lives. We're salt, we're light. That's why we're here. We're ambassadors here. Now I got to let you in on a little secret. And this is a freebie. You can tip me later. Your desires know one word, one, more. That's it. And that works both ways to the things of this world and to the things of God. That's the way we were created. They used all of their energy, all of their resources, all those things on updating their own homes while God's house lies in ruins. Consider your ways. Look soberly. Look carefully. Be honest. Don't be defensive. Don't be offended. Just look. What do you see? He's having them assess their present circumstances. Like they are coming out of a harvest season. He's like, how did that go? They're like, not so well. He's like, do you think there's a reason for that?
stop talking about how it's not the right time. Go up to the hills, get the wood, make the change, repent. If you start, if you obey me, if you receive the invitation to be with me, I will take pleasure in it and I will receive glory in it and through it. You know what the New Testament equivalent of this is? Matthew chapter 6, verse 25 through 34, where Jesus says, don't worry about what you're going to eat. Don't worry about what you're going to wear. The pagans worry about that stuff. But not you. You seek first the kingdom. And then all these other things will be added to you. You, your purpose, your responsibilities, seek first the kingdom. Friends, today we don't have a temple, a physical temple of wood and stone and iron and glass. We, we don't have that. Today we as the church, we are the temple of God. He dwells within us. He inhabits the praises of his people and we are told to be about him and his work first. And when we understand this, when we understand that this isn't just the words of a pastor of a church trying to you know, stir up God's people, when we actually hear this as the word of the Lord, then it causes something to happen inside of us, which is what happened to the nation of Israel here, is that they began to fear God. Something shifted in their posture in that moment as they took 23 days to consider their ways. They realized, oh my goodness, God is speaking to us. And oh my goodness, he is right. And they began to fear the Lord. That's repentance. That's moving out of complacency. That's moving out of apathy. Friends, listen, you can't fear God and be apathetic. It's impossible. You can't do that. And this isn't like I'm scared of God. This is like giving God the reverence and awe and respect and, and declaring that he's holy, acknowledging God is sovereign, sovereign and supreme above all else. Realizing that God's at work. You're at that spot. You're like, yes, I can't believe you're so gracious, God, that you're giving me another opportunity. To fear the Lord is to love him above all else. And the primary issue that God was calling out in the nation of Israel here was that there was something off with their relationship. Church, this is important for us. If we were to look at Haggai's contemporary, Zechariah, which is the next letter, in chapter 1, verse 3, he says the, the same thing in different words to the nation. God was saying to Israel, return to me and I will return to you. The issue isn't about the building. The issue is about the relationship. And it's not even necessarily just about the relationship. It's about God's glory. About being a blessing. Friends, the church is the hope of the world through Jesus Christ. 
when it comes to looking at all of the political issues, the racial issues and all of the things, we can choose sides and opinions and all that kind of stuff. But friends, listen, the true solution is through Jesus. He needs our heart. When God has our heart, we can look at these solutions the way Jesus would see them. We would look at the scenario and not pick sides. We would see it and be able to mourn with those who are mourning and, and cry out for justice with those who are crying out for justice and pray for those to come to know the Lord Jesus. Yeah, it's complicated, no doubt. But this is what we're about. And so people go, Brandon, what is the first thing? And I know everybody says, but I want to land on this. What is the one thing that we should do? Church, it's for us as the church to consider our ways, move out of apathy, fear the Lord. I'm not a tech guy. In fact, even though you can consider me a millennial, I don't, know, I don't know tech stuff. And a lot of times when I get to the spot with computer issues, I get so frustrated that I'll call our IT guy and he goes, have you restarted your computer? And I'm just like, then I'll restart it. I'm like, oh. <laughs> Friends, that's repentance. Because a lot of times we're like, ah, how do we move? What do we do? How do we get right? And all this kind of stuff. Repentance is resetting. It's recalibrating. It's returning to the Lord. So we carved out some time this morning in our time of worship together to do just that. To do the work of repentance. To be in that posture of producing fruit with repentance. And understanding that, yeah, we got to look at ourselves. We have to consider our ways. But knowing that it's all through God's grace. It's his kindness that leads us to repentance. He doesn't do this to guilt us or to shame us. He does it to free us. He does it to realign us. So that when we walk out of here, we can be about Jesus and living for him and his glory. So the question I ask you before we spend some time in reflection and prayer is what will you be offering God this morning? Your heart or your excuses? Lord, I ask that in this time, we would recognize you as good and gracious. Lord, that we would recognize you as supreme, as sovereign, as the initiator. The one who loved while we were enemies. The one who paid the price. The one whose body was broken, whose blood was poured out to redeem us from sin, from slavery, from lostness. Lord, would you capture the heart of this church? Lord, would your spirit be our mirror right now? Lord, maybe we humble ourselves and to consider our ways. Spirit, would you show us where we're apathetic, complacent, indifferent, and those are some of the most sneaky 
and devastating sins that we can have. God, I pray that you would help us to not lie to ourselves and and just say, hey, I got good intentions. Isn't that good enough? So Lord, we just trust you to do what you do best. Nurture and gently lead our hearts. In Jesus' name.